The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who commit heinous acts. I was born in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. So grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Content warning. This episode contains details of a mass shooting, violence, and mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please visit NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I.org for resources and to reach out for help. shootings have killed more than 300 people and injured hundreds more. This week, I'll be covering the case of the Thurston High School shooting. But first, let's head to our PNW town profile. Springfield, Oregon is located in the southern Willamette Valley and at the 2010 census had a population of just under 60,000. The first inhabitants to the area were the Kalapuya people. They used controlled burns as a way to maintain the valley and their food sources. From the article I read, they were able to direct wildlife to a certain area using fire, and it also helped clean the valley at the beginning of the fall to prepare for the following spring. It also made grasshoppers and wild honey easier to find in the winter, which were essentials as winter food. According to land claim records, William Stevens, 
was the first settler to stake a claim in the Springfield area in October of 1847, when he began building a house with his three eldest sons, and the rest of the family joined in December. The area was then settled by Elias and Mary Briggs and their family the following year. Elias and William ran a ferry on the nearby Willamette River. For many years, the Springfield economy relied on the timber industry. With the largest employer being Warehouser Company, which opened in 1949. However, after years of aggressive logging, they downsized, and in the 1990s, their sawmill and veneer plants closed, and the paper plant was downsized, and Springfield's economy is much more diverse these days. The city of Springfield is surrounded by filbert hazelnut orchards, and 98% of American filbert production is harvested in the Willamette Valley. And that's Springfield. But I'll probably be back for the case of Diane Downs. And now, on to the story. Before school shootings were unfortunately a common event, before social media took over the world, and even before Columbine, a school shooting took place in the Pacific Northwest, Springfield, Oregon to be exact. Until I started my research, I was not aware of how much of an impact this specific case had on our country and for the future shootings like it. While the Columbine shooters claim to have based some of their plan off of this mass shooting, law enforcement and psychologists also studied the event and the shooter to attempt to prevent future incidents, as well as create a protocol for schools and police when it does happen. Here's how a family with a kid struggling with mental illness led to one of the first mass school shootings and the long-lasting effects it had on the victims and community of Springfield, Oregon. Kiplin Philip Kinkle was born August 30, 1982, and was the second child born to William and Faith Kinkle. Both of his parents were Spanish teachers. Faith taught at Thurston High School, while William also taught at Thurston High School and Lane Community College. He had an older sister named Kristen, who was five years old when Kiplin's came along. By all accounts, Kiplin, who went by the name Kip, had a normal childhood with loving and supportive parents. The Kinkle family spent a sabbatical year in Spain when Kip was just six years old, and he attended a Spanish-speaking kindergarten. This was a struggle for him, and he didn't do well with the curriculum. He struggled in school and was not fluent in Spanish like his parents and sister, so he had a very hard time during this year. The family returned to Oregon when their sabbatical was over, settling in the Springfield area, where he was enrolled in first grade. His teachers were concerned over his lack of maturity and his physical and emotional development. And based on his teacher's recommendations, he was held back in the first grade. While repeating the grade, he was diagnosed with dyslexia, which progressively got worse, and he was placed in extensive special education classes by the time he was in second grade. From a young age, Kip had a fascination with firearms and explosives. His parents were very much against anything that encouraged violence. So when he was young, he was not allowed to have G.I. Joes or Nerf guns. His father originally discouraged his interest, but eventually tried to guide him safely into the interest by enrolling him in gun safety courses, and eventually bought him a 22 caliber rifle and a 9mm Glock handgun at the age of 15. As he grew older, he continued to struggle in academics and socially. Classmates described Kip as strange and morbid. He would describe killing animals and making bombs to other students, which was off-putting to most. 
He constantly spoke of committing violent acts and stated that he had planned to join the army after high school to find out what it was like to kill someone. When the Kinkle family took a vacation to Disneyland, a friend asked how the trip went, and he replied he wanted to punch Mickey Mouse in the nose. He also gave a presentation at school about how to make a bomb and would set off stink bombs in the lockers of classmates. When Kristen moved away to college, leaving Kip and his parents as the only remaining members living at home, the arguing and divide between Kip and his father worsened. He got in trouble for throwing rocks off of a freeway overpass onto cars, which by the way is one of my worst fears, and started hanging out with friends who the parents worried about. In high school English class, he studied William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and related to the protagonist of the story. And when the modernized 1996 film adaption came out, he was enamored by it. Kristen would tend to be the middleman between Kip and his parents. He felt compared to Kristen, who always had good grades, was a cheerleader, and genuinely got along with her parents. But she would also take up for Kip in these fights. From what she knew about her brother, he was just an angsty teen and was not much different from how her friends acted at that age. But she was also away at college in Hawaii for the last few years prior to the event and may not have had the full picture of what was going on at home. William and Faith acknowledged their son had issues and sought help. Kip was enrolled in anger management and also had been evaluated by psychologists, but they did not disclose the widespread family history of mental illness on both sides of their families. Kip displayed signs of paranoid schizophrenia, but the full extent was not apparent until it was too late. He had gone to great lengths to hide his mental illness out of fear of being labeled as abnormal. I feel like this would be a normal feeling for anyone with a mental illness, but also being a teenager compounded with the fact that he was already hypersensitive to labels after he had been placed in special education classes and faced bullying due to it. He would later admit that he started hearing voices at the age of 12, and it progressed to suffering hallucinations and paranoid delusions, including the belief that the government had implanted a computer chip in his brain. There were three voices. Voice A commanded Kip to commit violent acts. Voice B, who repeated insulting and depressive statements about himself. And voice C, who echoed what A and B said. He said he felt punished by God for being subjected to the voices. He sought counseling and was placed on Prozac for his depression, which by all accounts from his therapist, parents, and sister seemed to be working well as he seemed happier and mentally healthier. His relationship with his parents improved as well during this time, but unfortunately, since he was doing so well, they decided to take him off of the Prozac and once again he began to spiral. His violent tendencies, mental illness, and anger became exacerbated as a 15-year-old freshman at Thurston High. On May 20, 1998, Kip was suspended from school after bringing a loaded, stolen handgun on campus. A friend of Kip had stolen the pistol from his father and arranged to sell the gun to Kip the night before. He paid $110 for the Beretta Model 90 32 caliber pistol that was loaded, which he then placed in his locker. The father realized his gun was missing and filed a police report, naming a few students he believed could have been in possession of the gun, but Kip's name was not on the list. However, since he had shared with multiple people that he had the gun, he was questioned by police and school administrators, and he said, quote, Look, I'm going to be square with you guys. The gun's in my locker. 
He was then suspended from school and arrested alongside his friend, but was released a short time later and picked up by his father. Once they got home, William told Kip he would be sent to military school if his behavior did not improve. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Do you love trying new teas? How about supporting a PNW-based company? Then treat yourself to a cup of Plum Deluxe. From bold caffeinated blends to relaxing herbal teas, incredible dessert teas, or fun floral flavors, there's a delicious tea just waiting for you. Every blend is made fresh in-house using only the highest quality ingredients and carefully crafted recipes. They also have a popular Tea of the Month Club, which gets you free shipping and other amazing perks. I've tried several different types of their teas, and so far my favorite is the Oregon Breakfast Black Tea, followed by my runner-up, Portland Rose City Chai. Each packet of this tea tells you exactly what's in it and is shipped from Oregon. So if you would like to view the wide array of teas, visit plumdeluxe.com slash upper left and use the VIP code upper left to save 12% on your first order today. Plum Deluxe Tea also makes a great gift. That's plumdeluxe.com. struggle to find a shampoo and conditioner that works for me. Some make my scalp dry and itchy, others make my hair feel greasy and weighed down, and I'm sure my love of dry shampoo hasn't helped matters either. I've done a lot of research trying to find a shampoo and conditioner combo that was just right for my hair. That was until I found Seattle-based company Gemist. I took their quick two-minute quiz and their fancy schmancy algorithm matched me with the best shampoo, conditioner, and a scalp balancing bar. I was shocked by how fast it arrived to my doorstep and as soon as I opened the box, it smelled amazing. With hints of mixed berries, pink pepper, lily of the valley, rose, crushed tonka bean, amber, and a splash of orange, I knew my hair would smell heavenly. I matched with Shampoo 6, which is great for volumizing, free of parabens, dyes, and sulfates, and safe on color-treated hair. And Conditioner 13, which is their best detangling conditioner that also protects color from fading and strengthens hair by 76%. I have super thick hair, and usually I have to use a ton of conditioner and brush it out for a long time, but not after a quarter size amount of Gemma's conditioner. It combs through so easily, and best of all, my scalp isn't itchy and my hair is soft and shiny. So much so that even my husband noticed after my first wash. I have to admit, I had no idea what a scalp bar was, but it removed buildup and more. Is it magic? Nope, it's science. Bonus, you can also save money by subscribing. So if you are ready for the best hair of your life, try Gemist. Right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% on each order, so this is an amazing deal. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it ASAP. Just visit Gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter code UPPERLEFT at checkout for 20% off your subscription and free two-day shipping. That is Gemist.com. G-E-M-M-I-S-T dot com and enter code upper left at checkout to get the best hair of your life. 
Your business deserves the same expertise as that of a Fortune 500 company. If you need a CIO level service, why hire a full-time staff member at $250,000 a year when you can get this on-demand service for fractions of the cost? As your CIO on demand, we'll give you the steps you need to take so as to minimize interruption to your business and profitability and provide you and your business with training and education to prevent future attacks. To get an efficiency review for your business today, contact us at www.ee-services.com. And now back to the story. At around 3 p.m., Kip retrieved his Ruger 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle from his bedroom and the ammunition that was kept by his parents in their bedroom. He found his father sitting at the kitchen counter drinking coffee and shot him once in the back of the head, killing him instantly. He dragged the body into the bathroom and covered him with a sheet and then awaited for his mother to arrive home from work in the grocery store. At around 6.30 p.m., she pulled her car in the garage, and Kip met her, told her he loved her, and shot her twice in the back of the head, three times in the face, and once in the heart. He then dragged her body across the floor and covered her with a sheet as well. Throughout the next morning, Kip repeatedly played a recording of Liebestad, which is the final dramatic song from the opera Tristan and Isolde on the family's sound system. The recording was featured in the 1996 Romeo and Juliet film, and it was on the soundtrack. He then wrote out a note that he left on the coffee table that read, I have just killed my parents. I don't know what is happening. I love my mom and dad so much. I just got two felonies on my record. My parents can't take that. It would destroy them. The embarrassment would be too much for them. They couldn't live with themselves. I'm so sorry. I am a horrible son. I wish I had been aborted. I destroy everything I touch. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I didn't deserve them. They were wonderful people. It's not their fault or the fault of any person, organization, or television show. My head just doesn't work right. God damn these voices inside my head. I want to die. I want to be gone, but I have to kill people. I don't know why. I am so sorry. Why did God do this to me? I have never been happy. I wish I was happy. I wish I made my mother proud. I am nothing. I try so hard to find happiness, but you know me. I hate everything. I have no other choice. What have I become? I am so sorry. Shortly before being murdered, William Kinkle had confided in a friend that he was terrified and had run out of options to help his son. He had also had a run-in at the airport with a psychological expert and spoke to him for two hours about Kip's situation and was seeking advice. The following day, on May 21st, 15-year-old Kip drove his mother's vehicle to Thurston High School, from which he had been expelled from the day prior. He didn't even have a driver's license or own his own vehicle. He was wearing a trench coat to conceal the two hunting knives, his rifle, a 9mm Glock pistol, and a 22 Ruger pistol, and was carrying 1,127 rounds of ammunition. A Vietnam veteran would later comment that he was sent into battle with less than a third of that amount of ammunition. He parked the Ford Explorer about two blocks from the school on 61st Street because he likely would have been stopped from entering the school had he gone to the parking lot and walked through the main entrance. He jogged to the campus, entering the patio area at 7.50 a.m., where he fired his first two shots in the hallway one fatally wounding Ben Walker and the other wounding Ryan Atterbury. 
He proceeded to the cafeteria where a senior breakfast was taking place and walking across it, fired the remaining 48 rounds from his rifle, wounding 24 students and fatally wounding 17-year-old Michael Nicholson. Many students originally thought that it was a prank in honor of the senior breakfast, as that was a common occurrence during the celebrations happening at that time, and the shooter had opened the door aggressively and was wearing a trench coat and cowboy hat. School shootings weren't as commonplace then as they are now, so unfortunately most of the students had the initial reaction that it was a joke, and also there was no protocol in place for a situation like this. When Kip's rifle ran out of ammunition, he began to reach for another weapon, and a wounded student named Jacob Riker tackled him and was assisted by several other students, including his younger brother Josh, to hold him down. Jacob had been shot in the chest in the initial round of fire, but once he had tackled him to the ground, he put his hand over the gun that was just pulled and attempted to push it towards the ground, at which point he was shot in the hand. In the scuffle, the students were able to completely disarm and subdue Kip. Kip began yelling at the students, just kill me. But the seven students, including the injured Jacob Riker, were able to hold him down until the police arrived and place him under arrest. In the aftermath, 50 rounds were fired, 37 of which struck students and killed two. 300 students had been present in the cafeteria during the shooting. The first victim who died that day was 16-year-old Ben Walker. The sophomore was shot as he stood in the hallway before the shooter entered the cafeteria, and he later died at the hospital. He had just moved to Springfield from Southern Oregon in 1997. Ben was described by friends as easygoing and always happy. He loved the movie Ace Ventura and the Final Fantasy VII video game. He also dreamed of one day owning a brewery. Ben was an organ donor, and his organs helped 12 other people. Ben was survived at the time by his parents and a brother. Michael Nicholson was one of the two students to die that day. He was a 17-year-old junior. He had been doing homework in the cafeteria with his fiance Michelle Calhoun, when the shooter entered and gunfire erupted. Michael was enlisted in the Oregon National Guard as a systems analyst and computer programmer. He was set to begin basic training at the end of the school year. His interests included computers, and he served as a teacher's aide in the computer lab at Thurston Middle School. At the time, he was survived by his parents, two sisters, and a brother. Many students were hospitalized, including Jacob Riker, who had a perforated lung and injured hand, but he made a full recovery. He would later receive the Boy Scout Honor Medal with crossed palms for his heroic actions on the day of the attack. He was presented the highest honor awarded by the Boy Scouts by his father, a Navy diver, at a banquet at a local church with around 300 people in attendance, including his tearful mother and his girlfriend, who had also been wounded in the shooting. Back at the police station, Kip retrieved a knife that had been secured to his leg and attacked a police officer screaming, shoot me, kill me, but the officer was able to subdue him with pepper spray. He would later say that he wanted to commit suicide after murdering his parents, but couldn't bring himself to do it, so part of his plan was to be killed by police after the school massacre. Within 90 minutes of the first shot, the police raided the Kinkle home, finding his parents dead, and also two homemade bombs hidden in a crawlspace and two smaller pipe bombs. 
The search had to be stopped when a fifth bomb was found that appeared that it could possibly detonate. Police were forced to leave the house and 15 nearby homes were evacuated as the bomb was powerful enough to cause damage a quarter mile away. The bomb was safely disarmed and the rest of the scene was able to be cleared. They also found grenades, fireworks, and chemicals that were conducive to bomb making. After the shooting, over 200 mental health counselors volunteered to help students, teachers, parents, and others in the community who needed help. And over $400,000 of aid money was donated to a fund called Thurston Healing Fund. Kristen Kinkle held a celebration of life to honor her parents, and nearly 1,700 people were in attendance, including co-workers, former students, friends, and neighbors. Many people took the mic and shared memories of the respected teachers, and videos were shown of the couple energetically teaching their students, and clips of Spanish musical productions they had organized. The day before Faith was killed, she was notified that she had been selected as District 19's Outstanding Teacher of the Year. Kristen was 21 years old at the time of her parents' deaths, and she was surrounded by her aunts, grandmother, and extended family during the ceremony. Kristen was attending Hawaii Pacific University in Honolulu at the time of the shooting, where she was a senior studying speech pathology. She was awoken by a phone call on the day of the shooting, and it took hours to clarify what had actually happened. At a hearing, multiple mental health experts presented by the defense testified that Kip was mentally ill. Aside from the only psychologist who had treated him before the shootings, who assessed him as being in satisfactory mental health. The Kinkles had brought their son to him for nine sessions, and Hicks treated the boy for major depression. Kip stopped therapy at that point after his parents felt he was responding well to the treatment, and he had stopped showing signs of depression and also discontinued the use of Prozac. On September 24, 1999, just three days prior to jury selection was to begin, Kinkle pled guilty to murder and attempted murder, giving up the possibility that he could be acquitted by reason of insanity, and that following November he was sentenced to 25 years for murdering his parents and the two high school students, and then 40 months per count of attempted murder was tacked on, in which there were 26. 25 injured students and the police officer he lunged at with a knife, bringing the total sentence to 111 years in prison. During his sentencing hearing, he apologized to the court for murdering his parents and the school shooting spree. He began serving his life sentence at McLaren Youth Correction Facility in Woodburn, Oregon, where he would earn his GED. And in June of 2007, nearing his 25th birthday, he was transferred to the Oregon State Correctional Institution in Salem, as he had reached the maximum age for a juvenile correctional facility. Also in June 2007, Kip sought a new trial, stating that his previous attorney should have advised him to take the insanity defense. At the time of the original proceedings, two psychiatrists testified that he had exhibited signs of paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the shooting. A Marion County judge denied him a new trial, and Kip appealed that decision arguing that he had ineffective assistance of counsel during the proceedings. But the Oregon Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court judgment in January of 2011, denying him a new trial. Kip has appealed his sentence at both the state and federal level, stating that the guilty plea should not have been accepted without a prior mental health evaluation.
In 2006, Springfield Police Chief Jerry Smith held a presentation at City Hall titled Springfield Cops Behind the Scenes, The Thurston Shooting. He began by playing the 911 call to dispatch and reviewed the 13-minute timeline between Kip entering the campus to being apprehended. The law enforcement response was excellent, especially considering this was pre-Columbine and the many mass shootings that have followed, and there was no real protocol for a situation like this. The school video footage first captures Kip entering the campus at 7.50 a.m. The report as of 8 a.m. was that two students were injured and medics were staged outside by 8.01. At 8.02, the local hospital was placed on a trauma alert and Kip Kinkle was in custody by 8.03. Smith stated the shooter was remarkably accurate. It could be comparable to a trained soldier. He also stated that the biggest detriment to the investigation was the national media and the rumors that were spread by it. In particular, he called out the Associated Press Wire Service, who he accused of sensationalized reporting. When I was looking for clips for the trailer, a lot of them were Associated Press archival footage, and it was literally them videoing the memorial services of the two boys from a distance, like across the street, as they clearly were not invited. Smith said that national media reporters went as far as to pretend to be students, grieving parents, and medics to get close to victims and witnesses, and then took what traumatized 15-year-olds were stating that they had heard and ran with it. Wrapping up his presentation, Smith opened up the floor to questions and was asked his thoughts upon entering the cafeteria, and he responded, quote, I'll be a little selfish here. It took me about a minute and a half in the cafeteria to determine my son wasn't in there. His son was a freshman at Thurston at the time of the shooting. I can't imagine the panic knowing your child was somewhere on that campus that morning. Whether you were law enforcement or not, that is just such a horrifying situation. This was another cause for change, as parents rushed to the school after hearing about the shootings while they were trying to keep the crime scene clear for the later investigation and also triage the injured students until they could all be taken by ambulance to local hospitals. These days, most police departments and schools have a plan in place for reuniting students and parents and also informing family members if their loved one has been injured or killed in a more timely manner. According to an article from The Oregonian by Maxine Bernstein, Jennifer Aldridge recalls walking into school and wrapping her arms around her boyfriend, Jacob Riker, in the cafeteria and then hearing a loud noise and feeling intense pain and heat. She looked down and saw blood dripping from her hand. She tried to scream but was again shot through the back, which pierced her lung and caused her to lose consciousness. The shot that went through her hand was the one that went through Jacob Riker's chest, and he would later suffer a shot to the hand as well, while he wrestled the gun away from Kip. She woke up several days later in the ICU. Jacob and Jen had only been dating for a month at the time of the shooting. After graduation from high school, Jacob joined the Marine Reserves, and the couple who were 17 years old at the time of the shooting married three years later. She is quoted in the article as saying, we went from sharing bullets to sharing kids. Jennifer also detailed her journey to mental and emotional healing after the shooting, stating that she spent years hating the Kinkles for allowing their son access to guns when he was clearly showing he was troubled. But she said she began to empathize more after having kids herself. 
She said immediately after the shooting, she wanted to go on a crusade to prove how tough she was. But even as of the time of the article in 2018, she still gets uncomfortable when out for a walk and passes a stranger, and is unnerved by the red hair dye in the sink when she colors her hair. The Rikers have told their two children about the shooting, and Jennifer's word of advice to them was to not try and be a hero, try and be safe first. She has sought counseling and finds comfort in online groups that include others who have survived mass shootings. The couple who faced the trauma together and multiple lengthy deployments ultimately divorced in 2017. At an event on the fifth anniversary of the shootings, the Thurston Memorial was established and dedicated at Thurston High School in memory of the event. The monument includes a basalt column that recognizes Ben Walker and Michael Nicholson, the two students who were killed, and a paved area dedicated to all of the students that include colored bricks for Ben and Michael, as well as the 25 students who were wounded and the seven who stopped the shooter and secured his weapons. The community raised the $46,000 it took to build the memorial, and people donated things to help make the area even more beautiful, including trees, flowers, and other materials to build the memorial. I'm not going to touch the issue of gun control with a 10-foot pole on this podcast, but what I will stand on my soapbox for a moment about is mental health. With the world attempting to go back to somewhat normal following the pandemic, we've already endured several mass shootings this year. And I think that there are a staggering amount of people who are suffering mentally. So be kind, look out for your friends and family, and even strangers. It's important to look out for certain red flags as a parent, sibling, relative, or friend. Harming animals, a strong interest in violence, or guns, bombs, or weapons are all things that would be extremely important to address. Look for signs of depression and anxiety in your kids and everyone else in your life and address it lovingly and openly. Reaching out to a doctor is a good start, and I'm also going to be linking the NAMI organization on my website at upperleftpodcast.com under the Support Victim Causes tab. NAMI is an acronym for National Alliance on Mental Illness, and you will be able to find so many resources, including a crisis phone line or even a number you can text to receive assistance. They also have a lot of resources and support for someone struggling with mental health issues, as well as family members, friends, or caregivers who are looking for resources to help. They have tabs for teens and young adults, veterans and active duty military, identity and cultural dimensions, and frontline professionals, as well as resources for those who don't fall under one of those categories. NAMI is one of my favorite organizations to donate to because I see all of the good they do just through the resources on their website, let alone the other outreach that they do. And if you are able to give, you can do that through their site at NAMI.org. Kiplin Kinkle remains incarcerated at Oregon State Correctional Institution in Salem. And that is the case of the Thurston High School shooting. This week's PNW wine that I paired with my true crime is Columbia Valley Winery 2017 Gradient Red Blend. Fruit for the 2017 Gradient Red Blend was sourced from the best of the best sites around Washington, according to winemaker Sean Hales. The 2017 growing season was cooler than average, 
which caused the winery to have to be patient waiting for ripeness. This resulted in harvested fruit with deeply concentrated fruit characteristics, a slightly reduced amount of acidity, and supple mouth-filling tannins. Tasting notes are as follows. From aroma to finish, the 2017 Columbia Winery Gradient Red Blend offers the power and presence of a classic Bordeaux-style blend. Layers of dark cherry and black olive open in the glass with hints of toasted oak and baking spice. Blending 50% Cabernet Sauvignon in the 2017 creates a solid structure, firm tannins, and ample elegance. Adding 29% Merlot delivers layers of silky tannins and a balance to the wine. My pairing recommendation for this one is a slice of pizza. Cheers and thanks for listening. Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. All of the sources for this episode are listed in the show notes and at upperleftpodcast.com. While you are there, check out the Support Victim Causes tab to find the way you can help the victim's families or take a peek at my merch. You can follow me on Instagram at upperleftcornerpod. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.